you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. Story of Cain and Abel, you know it well. I'm going to pick up in verse 9, just as a reminder to us. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain said, I do not know. That would be a lie. Am I my brother's keeper or am I his shepherd? It's a little ironic. Abel was a shepherd himself. Am I to keep the one who keeps the sheep? Verse 10, he said, what have you done, Cain? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, verse 11, you are cursed because of it. You are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. You are cursed because, verse 12, when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. Not only that, you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. You will have no home, no city for yourself. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. My punishment is too great to bear. Could God have killed Cain? Probably could have taken him out right there. God was gracious and he didn't. He passed down a punishment. Cain saw it as still too much. Behold, Cain says, verse 14, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground. The ground will no longer yield its fruit to me. And not only that, from your face. And let me point out here that the the face of God to the Hebrew was not the presence necessarily of God as much as it was the blessing of God. So what Cain is upset with here is that he's losing the blessing from the ground. And he's now also doubly cursed in that he's losing the blessing from from God. For your your face will be hidden from me. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth and whoever... Whoever finds me will kill me. And he added that part himself, didn't he? (laughs) That last part wasn't part of God's curse. God hears his. His rebuttal and answers him in verse 15. So the Lord said to Cain. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain. So that no one finding him would slay him. So God extended grace. He didn't take Cain out for killing his His brother Abel, Cain didn't think that was quite enough. He thought that his life would be in danger. And so God says, I'll make sure your life's not in danger. And God gave some sort of sign. We know not what it was. So that everyone would know he was under the protection of God. And he sent him out. Grace upon grace. Cursed, however. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Underline that if you have a pen. That's the key, key phrase to this whole passage. Cain went out from the very presence of the Lord. And now he does something that he was commanded not to do, right? He was commanded to go out. The curse was issued, but he was to be a wanderer and a vagrant. But instead, what does Cain do? Cain settled or literally he dwelt. He put down roots. He housed himself in the land of Nod, literally the land of wandering. 
which was east of Eden. Cain had now relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. You know the story of Cain and Abel. You know it well. Maybe you don't know the story of what happened to Cain after he was, he was kicked out of Eden, after he, was, after he was sent out to be a wanderer and a vagrant. Maybe you don't know what has happened. I preached this text, these next few verses, uh, right when we started this church. Next week will be four years since this church started. And in those first few weeks, we looked at our purpose as we have been. We've been looking at our purpose. We've been going through a series called Re-Envisioning. We've been, we've been taking a, a new and a fresh look at our same purpose. Our purpose hasn't changed. But for all those people, all of you who are new from the very first time we preached this four years ago, we want to say this is what our purpose is. Before I preached that message, that series on our purpose, back in those first few weeks of our church, I preached this text. Here's why. I preached a message called trimming the fat. And some of you who were there in the school in those early days, you may remember that. I'm depending on the fact that you forget most of my messages. So now I can preach it again here four years later in a little bit different way, however. But as I was thinking about, you know, what should be the culmination message for us re-envisioning our series? Yeah, this is this. This is it. This is it. This week is the end of our re-envisioning series. Next week we have family worship. We're going to hear from Preston. What he has for you for the last time. And then we're going to move into a whole new series. We're going to move into a whole new, uh, whole new perspective in Scripture. Before we do that, how do we wrap up? And I've been praying about how we wrap up. And it, I remembered as I was praying, as I always do, about what, what this flock needs from the Word. Because that's one of my weekly prayers. God, even if I know the passage we're in and I know the general gist of the text, what it's teaching, I'm always asking, God, how does this congregation need this text? And as I was praying, God, how do we need to wrap up this series? Uh, it occurred to me that we probably need to wrap it up as we began the series way back four years ago. I began the series on our vision saying that before we ever talk about our vision, we've got to trim the fat. We've got to cut some things out of our life that may get in the way of us fulfilling the purpose that God has called not only our church, but every church in the world and the individuals within the church, too. To be in relationship with him, to be in relationship with other believers and to be in this love relationship to the world that we would extend the light and the grace that God has extended to us to a dark and dying world. That is the purpose across the board. And I said, before we get into that, we have to do some housekeeping. And it occurred to me now, as we end up this series on our vision, on our purpose, it might be a good place to wrap up as we started in the very beginning. Doing a little housekeeping, checking our own lives, asking ourselves some some very basic but tough questions about where our heart is and maybe not so much where our heart is, but where is our life and where are the practical things in our life lining up to help us to be successful when it comes to this purpose we say is from God. Because it's all well and fine to talk about following the Lord and feeding the sheep and freeing the world. But if there's anything that's keeping us from doing that, then understanding our purpose is really is really not enough. So today I end our series on our vision where we first started our series on our vision four years ago. Lamech. Enoch. Cain. Look at what happens to Cain. After God sends him out, he settled in a land of Nod. He wasn't supposed to do that. 
17, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch and he built a city. Cain built a city and he called the name of the city Enoch. He named the city after his son. Now, you got to understand that this is another this is another uh, strike in the face of God on the part of Cain. God, you've been too. Uh, you've been too harsh on me just because I killed my brother. Now you're going to the ground is cursed against me. You're going to hide your face and all your blessings from me. You're going to send me out. I've got to wander around and I've got to be a vagabond for the rest of my life. I'm not to put roots down anywhere. And he says, that's just too much for me. Uh, and God says, OK, I'll put a I'll put a sign of protection on your life. And Cain goes out and takes all the grace that God has given to him. And he does exactly what God says not to do. He sets himself up. He plants himself and he then builds himself a city. And he doesn't name the city after God, like he doesn't give God any honor for the grace God has extended to him. He honors his own son. He honors his own work. Now, this is the very thing, if you think about it, that got Cain in trouble in the first place. Cain and Abel both brought an offering to God. Abel brought an offering of his flocks. It said, God, I have nothing to do with these animals. I just give them to you. Their life is yours. I, I give them to you. Cain, on the other hand, he worked hard into the ground. And with his own effort and his own might, he brought an offering to God that was of his own doing. And he said, here you go, God, look what I've done. Abel brought what was God's creation to begin with. God supplied the offering for Abel, so to speak. Cain supplied the offering. And God said, that's that's not how it works, Cain. Cain's countenance fell. He was angry. God says, why are you angry? If you just if you do right, if you do good, I will bless you. Will not your countenance be lifted? It's now he continues honoring himself. Looking out for self. Not focused on what God's. Direction is for him. So he built a city, names it after his own son, honors his own name, honors his own son's name. 18. Now, Enoch was born to Irad and Irad became the father of and you get this whole list of other children here. Verse 19. Lamech took to himself. That's Enoch's son two wives. So what you're going to begin to see here is now that morals when man is on his own begin to decline and you're going to see morals decline, but you're going to see everything else seemingly get better. We're going to see agriculture, the arts, and we're going to see the industry flourish under these guys. But it all goes back to the fact that they've left the presence of God. By all indications, things are improving. The morals seem to be declining. <laughs> you know, those those things, they seem to be not so important anymore. Lamech decides he doesn't need just one wife. He needs two wives. That was at this time forbidden. It was not even overlooked by God. He took to himself two wives, one by the name of Adah and the other by the name of Zilhah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. All right. So agriculture begins here under this lineage of Cain to flourish. That's a good thing, right? Could be. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. So we see the arts on the increase. 22. As for Zilhah, she also gave birth to Tublacane, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tublacane was Namah. You see, so we've got the 
We've got the industry now. We've got the arts and we've got the agriculture all flourishing. Things seem to be getting better. These guys set up camp and everything is on the rise. Man is becoming successful, albeit all on his own, because they they walked away from the presence of God and they forgot all that God had instructed them. They're now elevating their name. They're not honoring God's name. And so all on their own, things are going going pretty good for themselves. Right. But remember, at the same time that things seem to be on the rise, we get some other things that just get lost. Now, you'll start to see some parallels to our own culture because this applies to us. Cain and Abel and all that unfolded from this story of Cain and Abel and from Enoch and Lamech, you will see a great parallel. We all identify with this idea that we all fall into the category of Cain and Abel at some point. We are either following God, we are intimate in relationship with God, or we are, we are going our own way. We are leaving the presence of God and we're doing our own thing, our own way. And as some things seemingly improve, we get a whole lot of things that are on the decline. Does that happen right now, today, in America? It sure does. Watch this. Lamech said to his wives, verse 23, Adah and Zilhah, listen to my voice. That's bad right there, right from the beginning. The wives will amen that. This doesn't sound good. You wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I've killed a man. And he just kind of says this matter of factly, doesn't he? He's just coming home, informing his two wives. Listen, uh, I killed a man because he, uh, he wounded me. Not only that, uh, a boy as well. Yep, uh, because he struck me. And, and it all just seems fun. But here's the deal. If Cain was avenged sevenfold, where does that come from? That comes from the grace of God, doesn't it? That if anyone were to lay a hand on Cain, God had marked him that no one could harm him. And so now we get the sons of Cain, the descendants of Cain, the ones who have left the presence of God, honored themselves on the increase in arts, agriculture and industry, on the decrease in their morals, mocking the very grace of God here, using the very words of God. Listen to what he says. If If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. All right. Um, Why why this message now? Here's the deal. And here's where uh, my teaching, (laughs) uh, my teaching goes back to one of those grandpa talks that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, I don't have any notes from this point on. Okay. Okay. here, here's what I here's what I sense in you who are um, who are seriously striving to live righteous, godly lives, fulfilling the purpose that God has called you to, and as we say it, following the Lord, feeding sheep, and freeing the world. Like I sense that our congregation uh, that you are striving towards that. Purpose, that vision that God has placed not only on our church, but in Scripture for all of us individually and corporately. Like I sense that you are you are moving harder after that than you ever have before. But I but I I also feel and the reason I was directed back to where we started our vision series back in 2006. Is that there there's very often. And on a reoccurring basis, things that that get in our way on a practical level that don't allow us to do what even our hearts want to do 
You know, some of you identify with, with the Apostle Paul. says, those things I want to do, I don't seem to be able to do them. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. And I think he was talking about some specific sin there. And we'll only know when we get to talk to him in heaven what those specific sins were, that, that flesh sin that Paul must have dealt with there. We, we just don't know. Okay, I can't wait to find out. I think I, I'm hoping it's some of the same ones that I deal with. That would just make me feel better when I get to heaven. But I, I think... That attitude also applies to just our general desire to want to be what God wants us to be and do what God wants us to do. And as your pastor, I, I'm, I'm always asking God, like, I want to be fair to you. Like, I don't ever want to come in here and preach at you and, and you walk out of here and you feel like this heavy burden on you. And you say, man, that sure would be great. But man, he doesn't know. He just doesn't know what's going on in my life. And the fact is, I don't fully know what's going on in your life. I, like, I know some things that are going on in your lives, and I know the weight of some of the things that are going on in your lives. And today's message is a message that, in my mind, is one of those that it's kind of, as Paul said every now and then, as he wrote different letters to different churches, it doesn't, it, it's not a bother for me to say these things again to you, and it's, it's for our benefit that we go over them from time to time. You remember some of those passages? It's one of those kind of messages where I feel like, I know you know this, but I think we need to be reminded often that sometimes life just gets in the way of being what God would have us be and doing the things that God would have us to do. Cain went his own way. And I think there's a lesson here in in the story of Cain and his descendants and the route they took. They became successful. They accomplished a lot. Humanly speaking, according to man's standards, Cain and his descendants, and they were successful in many different areas. At the same time, you see their morals slipping, but that doesn't seem to really matter so much anymore. The further you get away from the presence of God, the, the less conviction is, right? And so you don't hear that still small voice really anymore. It's not as important anymore. When I preached this message back in 2006, the message was this. Some of us have gone the way of Cain. We've, we've gone the path of our own life. Our life is about us. We see successes, many of us. Some things have been sacrificed in the meantime for some of us. Some of us have tried to balance that as best we can, but we've seen successes. We've seen some compromises. And there's this lesson in Cain and Abel of which way am I going to go? Am I going to go the way of the presence of God and all that comes with that? Or am I going to go my own way and do my own thing however I see fit? And maybe I see some benefit there. Maybe I see some things sacrificed. But all too often, I I find that my life sometimes begins to fall in line with that of Cain and his descendants more than or not as primarily as much as it would a guy who's living in the constant presence of God. Things just seem to get in the way. The successes seem to get in the way. The burdens of this life, all the things that I involve myself in in this life, they seem to take priority. Not all bad things, some very good things. We can't say anything bad about, a, about a, uh, an industry that is increasing in livestock or the arts. These are great things. But to the sacrifice of the presence of their God, none of them are worth it, right? But in our lives, the successes, ambitions, 
personal desires, goals, aspirations, they can easily take over. Material desires, they can easily take over. And let me say this, because I don't, I'm not preaching this to you guys in the, uh, in the vein that I think you guys are materialistic congregation, that you're a materialistic flock that are out chasing all that the world has to offer materially to the dismissal of your God. I don't think that's where this congregation is. Where I think this congregation is, however, is that you want and you earnestly desire that the things of this earth will grow more and more dim in the light of his glory and grace. Yeah, remember that old hymn? That that is your earnest desire, but there's still stuff and you're saying, I don't know what to do with it. God, I want to go hard after you. I want my life to be to be primarily focused for you. I don't, I don't want to go the way of Cain. I don't want to be a generation. I don't want my descendants. I don't want my children. I don't want those who come after me to look back down the lineage of their family and say, Dad was primarily focused on his own ambitions. Mom was primarily focused on her own desires. Instead, your desire is that your, your kids and your kids' kids would look back and say, you know what? The one thing I'd say about Grandpa, the one thing I'd say about Grandma was they were, they were gods. They were gods. They didn't depart from the presence of God. We didn't see an increase, but a sacrificial decrease in areas that were probably more important. The message four years ago was um, entitled Trimming the Fat. It was also called Dealing with the Noise. You know, I kind of had two, two titles to it. Sometimes in life there just seems to be a whole lot of noise that distracts us from hearing the voice of our God. From hearing the, the directives of our God. Yeah, sometimes life just gets noisy. Sometimes the stuff just gets in the way. Sometimes God will trim that stuff out of the way. Amen? If we won't, sometimes he will. Before God has to do it, wouldn't it just be, wouldn't it just be wise for us to do it? So here are the four action points I gave Four years ago, I want to I want to repeat them to you because I don't think I don't think anything has really changed how to cut some of the noise out of life, how to cut some of the fat. Number one, I said, realize that there is noise. Just realize that there is noise. It's kind of like the first step in AA. You got to admit that you're an alcoholic. First step in in cutting some of this fat, getting rid of some of the noise that distracts us from hearing the voice of God and hearing the directives in the, in the direction of God is just admitting that there is stuff in the way, admitting that there is noise, taking, uh, taking, um, taking inventory of your life. What is there that is just, that is just white noise? You know, some of it, we just, there's something about that white noise we like, though, right? Both of my kids sleep with one of those white noise makers. Seen these? In order to cut out other noises that might wake them up, we put something louder in their room. It's kind of an ironic, odd, silly thing, isn't it? But we put like, and our kids use crickets. They like the cricket one. And so you hear this cheap, 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 loud, annoying cricket deal that would keep you awake if there were real crickets, right? If there was a real cricket out your window, you'd search it out and you'd squash it. Right. But now we turn these things on and both kids like in stereo and we're listening through the monitor now. So we have crickets in our room 
And uh, we're listening to these crickets. And it's so that the cars that drive by don't wake them up, et cetera. And so we just it's odd because we've just become accustomed to the white noise. And sometimes uh, if the white noise isn't there, we we get very uncomfortable. Right. We get very uncomfortable. Somebody just is silent in a room. If you ever been in a prayer ministry or if you ever been in a in a Bible study and there's just this silence and maybe it's intentional silence and the leader just in, in, a, in a time of uh, discussion, they just sit there and they don't say anything. It gets real weird, doesn't it? We don't like it. We want something to be going on. If there's too long of a break in the song, we're thinking, what's going on? Why is there such long break in the song here? It's awkward. It, it distracts us. The quietness in that weird distracts us in the same way we fill our lives with the noise maybe we don't like the quietness maybe we don't want to hear what might be said in those still quiet times psychologists say that it's it's a defense mechanism actually that we use that we fill our lives with busyness we make our lives noisy. If there's downtime, we, many of us think that uh, we're wasting time. It used to be that people sat on their front porch in the rocking chair just to sit on their front porch in a rocking chair. Now we buy the rocking chairs just for decoration. We stick them out front. We rarely ever sit in them. To sit down means that uh, we, we're not getting anything done. We used to ask, how are you, when you'd see somebody? Yeah, it's like, now the question is, how, how, how's it going? And the inevitable answer is what? Busy, man. Man, it's busy. There's a lot going on. I find myself you know, guilty of that. You know, It doesn't really even matter how busy I am. Just ah, you got to be busy, very busy. Swamped, man. There's a whole lot going on. Just a busy week. Like as if we were to say, you know, no, no, nothing, nothing really going on. It's almost a confession of our own inability to be successful or to be worthy of anything. Like, like somehow we're worthless if we're not, we're not busy. You see, and we cultivate this in our culture in particular. You go to France, uh, man, you go to a restaurant in France. We went, we took a college group uh, from a previous church on a trip to France, Paris in particular. And uh, we'd go to a little restaurant there on the street and we'd order. And uh, the waitress would go home, take a nap, come back, fix our food, uh, take his five-minute break, and then bring our food out to us, right? Did you catch that? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not much. Like you go and you sit down, they, they take your order, and you sit forever. They don't expect you to be in a hurry. Silly Americans are in a hurry. We want our stuff now. We want it Burger King our way. Quickly. It says something about us, doesn't it? It says something about all the stuff that we fill in our lives. What's the point? Point is, we gotta we gotta realize sometimes that there is noise because we've just been desensitized to it. You know, I've told you I, I teach this sex ed class in uh, in high schools, and uh, one of the things I say to the students on the very first day is is that there is more pressure on their generation as ninth graders. To, to have sex with whoever, whenever, as much as they ever love and possibly can than any generation before theirs. More than my generation, and I'm just a couple phases of life ahead of them, and more than their parents' generation, certainly. And I just confess to them, listen, I get it. There's more pressure on you than any generation before yours. 
The next thing that we do is that we start to talk about where all that pressure is coming from. We talk about all the sources of media that's coming from TV, from movies. We talk about that it's coming from uh, the music and not just the music and now the music video. And they get this double whammy that not only have to listen to what so-and-so is doing in the song by by the lyrics, which are highly influential all by themselves. But now they have to watch so-and-so do whatever they're talking about in the lyrics on the video, which is this double whammy impact of influence. And they've got magazines and they've got the Internet, which, you know, there's no sex on the Internet to you know, to bother them there. Right. They've got this perfect storm of influence. And what I say to them is I say, you've been desensitized. And then they look at me like I'm crazy because they don't know what desensitized means. So I have to explain it to them. And I go down and I find this kid who's been bugging me the whole class. And I start thumping him in the head like this. It's part of my relief as they, you know, after a few periods, I get, you know, seven periods in a row of teaching ninth graders. I'm not built for ninth graders. Okay. And so now I get to take out a little of my frustration. And so I find this kid who's been, you know, mouthing off the whole time, making jokes at his buddy. And I start thumping him in the head like this. Cause I can get away with it. Cause it's an, it's a, it's an illustration. And so I'm thumping him in the head. I'm saying, does that, does that bother you? And you're like, yeah, that's annoying. I'm like, if I do this for a while, will it be annoying? Yeah, it'll be annoying. I said, the fact is if I keep doing this, that little spot in your head, it'll get numb after a while. And you'll in fact become what? And he looks at me like a, he doesn't know what I'm talking about because he hasn't been paying attention anyway. And everybody else in the class says, you become desensitized to it. And that, that's right. That's right. You become desensitized to it because there's so much there so often. And that's what happens, I think, to us in life. We, we become desensitized to all the noise that's in our life. So today, listen, here's the reminder. Here's the let's stop and think time. Take inventory of your life. Admit that there is noise. Stop for a moment. I tell the students. Stop for a moment when you're watching TV tonight and realize how much sex is being crammed in your face from the TV shows you're watching to the commercials in between. When you're riding in the car, listen to how much sex is on the radio on and on. And they're like, yeah. And they come back the next day and say, yeah, man, I, I didn't I didn't really notice. And that's the whole point. Just awake to it for a moment. For you, awake to it for a moment that our lives can very easily and very often get noisy. Even if we've dealt with it a year ago, we need to re re-examine our lives a year later because very easily we in our own ambitions and our material desires and our own our own priorities we usher that noise right back in and satan would love for it to get noisy so he helps us recognize that there is noise realize that it is noisy number two here was the second action point i gave Find out where the noise comes from. <laughs> that makes sense, right? Find out where this noise in life is coming from. I take the students through. I say, let's talk about TV. Name the TV shows that you watch. And they name them. Let's, let's talk about the songs. And I, and I pull up my phone and I, and I pull up the top ten download iTunes songs of the day. And I say, these are the songs that you and your peers are listening to. And inevitably, on average, eight out of ten already tell me that they're explicit in the lyrics. And then I ask them, I say, you tell me how many of these songs are sexual in nature. On average, and I've been in about every high school in Gwinnett County, on average, every time I do it, eight out of ten. And then I ask them, okay, how about the other two? Would your grandma think they were sexual in nature? And they all laugh. Yeah, probably. Would she fall over dead and have a heart attack? Probably. And they all laugh. If I watch the video of these ten songs, would there be something sexual in nature, even if the lyrics don't have it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we talk about where where is where's the pressure to have sex coming from? This holds true for us. Where is this? Where is this pressure to be busy? Where are all the busy things entering in our lives? How are they getting in there and what are they? Because until you know what they are and how they've gotten there, you can't deal with them efficiently, right? 
I spend a whole lesson with these kids talking to them about where the pressure comes from. And I quote G.I. Joe and I say, now you know where the pressure comes from and knowing is half the G.I. Joe fans battle, knowing is half the battle. And I explain to them, listen, it always it never made sense to me when G.I. Joe used to say that at the end of every cartoon. What do you mean knowing is half the battle? I thought the battle was the battle. But knowing in and of itself is actually helpful so that now you know where the pressure is coming from. You can deal with it. If you don't if you don't know where the pressure is coming from, you'll never be able to deal with it. So what I say to us is where where's this noise coming from? What's all this extra stuff that is in, our, is in our life? Know where it comes from, how it got there. That's half the battle to dealing with it. First, recognize there is there is noise. There is. Figure out where it's coming from. Number three. Well, let me let me add a two point five. All right. If you can't tell where this noise is coming from, you might need to ask someone who you trust. Now, this takes a little more courage. Because in the midst of the noise, as we are desensitized to it, even trying to see where the noise comes from, we don't always see it in our own lives. Is that right? We don't always see it. If you're really courageous, not only find out where it's coming from, but ask somebody else that you know and trust, hey, how noisy does my life appear to be? What do you think? Be careful. (laughs) Don't ask me because I don't want to be the one who tells you. It gives you the hard word, okay? But ask somebody else. Uh, but be willing, if you're going to ask that question, be willing to let them, let them say, listen, man, your life looks, looks noisy here. It looks noisy here. And I, I don't know, if you're the person who's asked, here's how you want to start this. I don't know. I don't know for sure. Like, I don't know everything that's going on in your life. Because you don't, okay? It's kind of like telling somebody how to raise their kids. That's never a good idea. Because you never know specifically what's going on with their kids. That's always dangerous ground to tread on. In the same way, if you get approached and somebody says, hey, you tell me where the noise is in my life, you may want to start it out with, hey, I'm not sure, but if from the outside, maybe this could be tweaked a little bit. Could you, could you work on this area a little bit? I, I don't. 2.5, if you're willing, go to someone you trust and ask them to point out where the noise is coming from. Number three, turn some things off. Makes sense, right? In life. Every now and then we've got to turn some things off. There may be some things in your life that are making noise that, that doesn't need to be there. It's a racket that doesn't need to be in your life. And the, the conclusion is, very simply, turn it off. <laughs> turn it off. Preston and I were joking the other day as he's uh, getting ready to go on to this, this church that is, is different from ours in many ways. They, uh, he's going to be called upon to be a counselor uh, much more than he has been here. And uh, he and I were joking, and I said, listen, uh, if I've had any word of the Lord for you in moving on to this other church, this is it. That you're going to have to be much more uh, gracious than we have had the uh, requirement to be here at Cornerstone. Like, we're able, overall, we we feel like we've been able to really just talk straight with you guys and, and say, this is what the word says. And I joked with him, and I said, here's the deal, man. Neither you or I are good counselors, because counseling to us is... Uh, someone comes, uh, pastor, here's what's going on in my life. Uh, I've got a problem with this. And our response is my response. Uh, I'll just confess my sin is don't do that. Don't do that. A plus B equals C. You got problems here. Then don't do that. All right. Well, I got this going on in my life. and I'm struggling with that. Well, stop it. That's the extent of our counseling ability here. So I know when I say some things just need to be turned off. That that's just uh, that's just straight to the point. I mean, it's just direct. That's not you know, I'm not I'm not helping you feel all through that. But there are just some things you have to admit that just need to be gotten rid of. Amen. I mean, 
And again, I sense that this congregation wants to hear the voice of God clear, that this congregation wants to move forward as a church and as individuals into this this thing that I've been saying is an extraordinary church, an extraordinary church that God has for us here in 2010. And if we're going to do that, it has to start in individual seats here and an individual family saying, what do we need to get rid of here? I think that if you've been in life groups, as we've studied through this book, Crazy Love, that that's been that's been clear to you that there may be some things that just need to get shut off. There may be some things that just need to not be noisy and distracting in life anymore that you very easily probably could deal with if you would deal with. All right. Number four, I said um, four years ago, and I think it still holds true. Some things may maybe uh, could be just turned down, if not completely off. Maybe there's some ways that we could just back off. Maybe there's some ways that we could cull our our involvement. Maybe there's some things that we just need to say, you know what, I, I can't I can't focus on those. I'm not called to focus on those. God would have me be diligent in this area, and that means that I can't be diligent in that area. I told my wife this just a couple couple days ago. Some other things that I'm involved in, I said, I just I and I don't want to, right? So don't feel like this is this is the part of the message where I'm saying like there are things that you you don't want to you, you don't want to be involved in. These are things that we do want to be involved in, perhaps. That just need to get back down because they're not the things God says are priorities. Yeah? They're all well. They're all good. They're all great things. But maybe God is saying those don't need to be the prime things. They don't need to be the first things. And so those things, however good and well and right they may be, they may just need to get turned down a notch if not completely turned off. Look for those things you can turn completely off. Look for those things you can, you can turn down. Um, let me read. Let me read one, um, one or two sentences from one of my favorite authors. Richard Foster wrote a book, Celebration of Discipline. It uh, was a foundational book early on in my Christianity. He said this in a chapter entitled Simplicity. Simplicity, the, the need for simplicity in the life of the believer. The majority of Christians have never seriously wrestled with the problem of simplicity. The majority of Christians have never seriously wrestled with the problem of simplicity. Conveniently ignoring Jesus' many words on the subject. Search, search the New Testament. Search the New Testament. See how many of the words of Christ dealt with us not being attached or too attached or too immersed or too enmeshed in the things of this world. They're countless specifically all the material things and all the financial deals, Jesus hit over and over and over again, not because he wants our money, but because he knows the lure that those things have on our heart. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll despise the one and love the other and serve the other. No man can serve both God and Mammon, that's a weird word. It's an Aramaic word that means wealth. And wealth doesn't just mean money. It means, 
it, it connotated the whole desire for all that stuff. And the words of Jesus put wealth on an unfortunate parallel with God himself. He makes that desire a God in comparison in our own hearts. And he says you can't, you can't balance those things. It doesn't work. The majority of Christians have never seriously wrestled with the problem of simplicity. Conveniently ignoring Jesus' many words on the subject. The reason is simple. This discipline directly challenges our vested interests in an affluent lifestyle. This discipline of simplicity directly challenges our vested interests in an, influ- in an affluent lifestyle. Let's pray.